Open God's holy word to the letter of First Peter, First Peter chapter one. I'll be reading verses one through twelve. Our focus will be on verses six through nine. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this... You rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, You believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that when we suffer, It would be for righteousness' sake. Or as righteous persons. And that through those trials, our faith would be proved. To the astonishing end of glory and honor and praise at the revelation of Christ. So Father, so work by Your Word now that when those fiery trials come, our faith would not simply be sustained, but would glow hot with joy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're beginning now the second course of three of trying to eat an elephant chunk by chunk. So a couple of weeks ago, we ate the chuck in the rib, and you've had some time to digest. Now we're going to turn 
to the loin, followed by the round next week. To decode that, that's simply to say that verses 3 through 12 are one elephantine sentence in the original language. It's broken up in English for us to make sense of it, but it's one sentence in the original language that falls into basically three parts. Verses 3 through 5 focus on our living hope, our future inheritance, our salvation that's ready to be revealed at the last time. Verses 6 through 9 that we'll look at this morning relate that future hope, that inheritance, that salvation ready to be revealed, they relate that future inheritance to our present suffering. And then finally in verses 10 through 12, they tie these things to God's revelation of them to us through the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New In this loin section, verses 6 through 9, what you'll find is that future hope is juicy with joy. No matter the context, no matter the environment that you find yourself eating it in. Our hope isn't a dry and tasteless resignation to fate. It isn't a kind of stoic facing the facts. We have a hope which fuels endurance. Hope fuels endurance. Hope of health endures chemotherapy. Hope of fitness endures exercise. Hope of reward endures hard work. Hope of a child endures labor. Hope of peace endures war. In Christ, we have a hope so certain and so grand that it can endure the whole of life, the worst of life, life at its ugliness with joy unscathed. It can even endure death itself. The this that Peter says he rejoices in, in verse 6, in this you rejoice, the this is the inheritance that we're born again to, Verse six, uh, verse three, excuse me. It's the hope, that living hope which we have. It's that salvation which we're being guarded for, verse five. Those are all largely synonymous. And whenever you look at this hope that we have, this living hope, this inheritance, of course one would rejoice in it. But what is so gripping here is that it's rejoiced in, though we are grieved by various trials. Now note that trials do grieve. We're not denying that. There is a sorrow, a sadness, a a lament, a longing to our Christian pilgrimage. We are elect exiles. We are aliens. We are strangers. We are sojourners. This means there's a kind of homesickness that is natural to the saints. One kind of trial that we're grieved by, just to take an example, is death. And of death, Paul instructed the Thessalonians... In 4.13, this first letter to them, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul doesn't say, I don't want you to be ignorant of the hope of the resurrection because I don't want you to grieve. He says, I don't want you to grieve as others do without hope. Elsewhere, Paul spoke of being sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. 
Elsewhere, we see him speak in like manner. This is no pie-in-the-sky delusion that ignores the sorrows of this world. John Piper writes, The Christian life is a bed of roses, thorny stems and all, fragrant sorrow and the hope of thornless glory. No, the, the, the Christian isn't delusional. He's the only one who gives the sorrows of this world their due weight and credit. In this age, God's exiles should be both the most sorrowful and the most joyful. And our joy is such that it's, it's intact, though we suffer various trials. No trial is so great that the saint cannot rejoice. Paul asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Let that paint what the Christian pilgrimage toward heaven is like for you right now. It is not kingdom come here and now. These things are the exile's experience now. Even so, Paul says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because nothing can separate us from His love, no trial is so strong as to kill our joy. The rains of this world don't dampen the flame of heaven's joy. Fiery trials cannot burn up our eternal inheritance, which Peter has already told us is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, being kept for us and we being kept guarded for it. Now, though many of these same things that we're going to see in our text could be said of the Father's discipline of us, here the focus is on trials. And while often our experience in life is probably a mix, we do need to keep that distinction intact. Jerry Bridges helps make it well. He says, trials differ from discipline in that their purpose is to exercise our faith, not deal with sin in our lives. So throughout Peter, the trials that he's going to focus on are one, enduring hardship for the sake of righteousness or enduring hardship in righteousness. For example, 2.19. This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 3.14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. 4.14 and 15. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So I take trials here to mean suffering, not for sin, but suffering for righteousness or suffering as righteous. And yet we have to say this, all suffering 
is rooted in sin. All suffering, every bit of it, is rooted in sin. Because Adam sinned, we have to deal as even born-again saints. We have to deal with this battle with our flesh, with indwelling sin. That is a trial we have to endure. Because of Adam's sin, we have to endure sickness, disease, weakness. We have to endure the effects of God's curse on this earth for man's sin. We have to endure the consequences and the the pain of others' sins against us. Whether they be unintentional sins of a brother in Christ or the intentional persecution of the wicked. We have to endure the fact that we sin and hurt others and the consequences that remain of those sins. All suffering is rooted in sin. And it's precisely for this reason that it's only the Christian who gives full weight to the world's sorrows, understanding them, the depth of them, the magnitude of them, the extent of them. But it's also because we recognize this, that we have hope. Because we realize that man's sin is not as big as Jesus' salvation. And so it isn't that Christians make light of the sorrows of this world. We view them from a different perspective. We understand the misery of this world better, and yet we have a hope. You see something of that whenever Paul says, we're grieved for a little while. For a little while. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, whenever Paul wrote that, the we that he's speaking of is not me and you Corinthians. Read Corinthians. It's astonishing how much of that letter Paul is referencing himself as a minister of the gospel. He's addressing his ministry. And that's the very letter in which Paul recalls all his sufferings for the gospel of Christ, you remember. He says he's, he's endured hardships and countless beatings, of which he recalls being receiving 39 lashes five times, being beaten with rods three times, being stoned once. And how is it that Paul can call such things light and momentary? It's whenever they're put in the scales in comparison to the weight of the glory that is to come. As an adult, you have a different perspective of time and pain than your children. An hour to them seems like eternity. And to you, it's here and gone so quickly. Likewise with pain. Now as saints, we, we, we exiles of the age to come have a a kind of maturity, a kind of age that's beyond this world with which we look at the sufferings that we experience on this earth. We've lived more years, as it were. The saint should view these things in such a way that the world thinks that we're alien, we're foreign, we're, we're not from here. This much is universal, though. Man's life is short. 
Psalm 39.5 says, Behold, you've made my days a few hand breaths, and my, time is as, my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. James tells us that our life is like a mist that appears and then vanishes. Soon, Peter will quote Isaiah 40, telling us that all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails. The 103rd Psalm picks up on that motif and goes on to speak of our hope. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. Our trials are tied to this world that is fading, but our joy to the world that is coming and breaking into this present age. Sinner, you do not have this hope. The sorrows of this world are nothing compared to the sorrows that await you. There is joy in this life, but the joy should make you weep all the more because that's the best it will ever be and those joys are fleeting while your sorrows will be eternal and infinitely greater than you can comprehend even in comparison to the most tragic of trials and sufferings you might face in this life. You see, it's not the saint's joy. It's the sinner's joy that's a delusion. Sinner, forsake the sinful joys and pleasures of this age and bow in repentance to Jesus Christ the Lord and know joys unfading and ceasing. Saints, the trials that we endure are not simply small in comparison with our hope, but the trials that we endure work towards our hope. They're necessary in relation to our hope, verse 6. Now, before you ask why they're necessary, or we get to why they're necessary, I think you need to ask yourself this. Says who? Who said they're necessary? Who's deemed them necessary? Who's ordained them as necessary? Trials are clearly being used here as a tool. Who's holding the handle? Who's decided that trials are necessary? You see, trials don't just accomplish something. Well, trials end up in this happening. You're stronger. No, no, that's just a worldly philosophy to try to make you feel better for having gone through something. It's godless. Yeah, that, there's some truth to it, but there, there's a godless frame of reference for that kind of understanding of trial. Trials don't just happen and you're better for them. Trials for the saint are ordained. They're necessary. They're purposed. And Peter will later write, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. 419, 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. good. Suffer according to God's will. Trials don't just happen and then are counteracted by God. They are ordained by our God as necessary. But how does this if work? In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. I think Peter is speaking in specific terms. Sometimes you'll live righteously and you'll suffer. Other times you'll live righteously and you won't suffer. So whenever you live righteously, if necessary, at that point in time, according to God's will, if necessary, you suffer for it. If not, in that specific instance, you won't. But know this, considering the whole of your life, suffering is not an if, but a win. On his return trip to the various churches he had planted, Paul visited them, and it said he encouraged them. And here's the words with which he encouraged them. He told them that they must continue in the faith because through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through tribulation you must enter the kingdom. So this is Christian realism. It's not this kind of stoic face about the suffering. It's not kind of a pie-in-the-sky delusion that ignores the sufferings and sorrows of this world. But it realizes they are a necessary path by which we make our pilgrimage home. Why are they necessary? Well, one thing they do, we're told, is that they prove our faith. Or so that the tested genuineness of our faith might come about. As fire proves gold by refining it, making its goldness more apparent, more obvious, more, more, real, more real in a sense, so trials are a fire to prove or to test, to, to put forth as genuine something far more precious than gold, our faith. And so just as raw gold ore is one thing, while purified and refined gold that's been through the fire is another, so raw faith is precious. But once it's been put through the trial, the fire, it glistens, it shines, its value more obvious. Trials prove our faith. But do you notice that that's not the goal? That's a means. The trial proves your faith towards something else here. So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. Whose praise and glory and honor? While it is true that the ultimate end of all things, including our trials, is the praise and glory and honor of God. Well, that's true. I think Peter has in mind a lesser step towards that ultimate praise and glory and honor. I think Peter is saying here specifically, uh, generally of everyone, what is said specifically of faithful shepherds in chapter 5 and verse 4. 
when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I think what's being said here is the same thing as what's being said in Romans chapter 2, where we're told God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. Now I think the last one of those, immortality, speaks to whose glory and honor are being spoken of there. You're seeking for immortality. You're not seeking for God's immortality. You're seeking for eternal life. So whose glory and honor are being sought for there? It's a kind of glory and honor for self that are being sought for here. Now listen to the way this plays out. He will render to each one according to his work. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, there's a kind of seeking for glory and honor and immortality that are not self-seeking. They have God as the frame of reference. That It's the same kind of thing whenever you know your child wants to please you. And it's not that they want praise to come to them. It's that they, want, they, they know that that praise means they've pleased their mom and dad. It's a genuine expression of love. I think that's what's being spoken of here. The kind of seeking of glory and honor and immortality are a kind of seeking all my joy in God. Versus the self-seeking that God will condemn. Those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. So that those who do evil receive distress and tribulation. Now, the, the Jew first and also the Greek, it doesn't matter ethnicity. What comes for those who do good? But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. Paul will go on to say in that same chapter, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise, such a person, who God has done this work to give them a new heart, his praise is not from man, but from God. Or 1 Corinthians 4 speaks of receiving commendation from God. So is this not astounding? The God to whom all glory and praise and honor will ultimately go towards that end will bestow glory and honor and praise on us. And you have to see the graciousness of all this. Peter has so excellently built that up that it's inescapable. Who gave you your faith? You were an elect exile. You were chosen. You were elect. You were chosen, verse 2, for obedience in Christ Jesus. That's the obedience that Paul speaks of throughout the book of Romans as the obedience of faith. Who gave you your faith? The God who caused you to be born again. Verse 3. Who keeps you in your faith? 1 verse 5. You're being guarded by God's power through faith. 
Who purifies your faith? The God who ordains these trials as necessary and sustains and keeps your faith through those trials. And then who rewards your faith? God. Rewarding His own work in you. And so do you see? While this praise and glory and honor being put upon you by God do not lift you up above God, but the end of them is ultimately the glory of God being magnified all the more. And this is why it is that the saints take their crowns which they've received from their God and cast them before His throne. Because it's all His work. It's all to His glory, all to His honor, all to His praise. Now when will these necessary trials be found to result in praise and glory and honor? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. This revealing is the same revealing being spoken of in verse 5 as our salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. At the appearing of Jesus Christ. This is whenever we come into our living hope in all of its fullness. Our inheritance. These, these are all overlapping. And so I take it to be obvious that this praise and glory and honor are part of our inheritance. These are part of our living hope. These are part of our salvation that's ready to be revealed that will come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials then prove our faith. Our faith that's in Christ concerning this hope. These trials prove our faith so that that proven faith might result in praise and glory and honor. Do you see what this means? It means that trials are not only incapable of scathing your heavenly inheritance, trials only work to increase your inheritance. Trials not only refine you as gold, they add to your wealth in Christ. Praise and glory and honor being bestowed upon you because of the faith that's been proven through the trials. And this happens when Christ is revealed. Make no mistake, on that day, no one will be saying, Wow, look at the praise and glory and honor that God is heaping upon Bob. No one will think that. Because they will be looking at Christ knowing Hebrews 12. That that Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. And so every time that our God is putting praise and glory and honor upon any one of us. We'll be thinking, oh what a Christ. And what a work he's done in this one. We'll be looking at the image of Christ in our brothers and sisters. Now let's look at what this rejoicing is, verse 8. Having spoken of Christ, Peter goes on to make two further contrasts in verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So do you see these three contrasts? The first one was in verse 6. You rejoice though you have been grieved. You love Though you've not seen Him, you believe and rejoice, though you do not now see Him. I believe all three of these contrasts, which are in a single sentence, 
are intermingled, harmonious, they're, they're inseparable. So rejoicing in our hope is an expression of faith and love. And loving Christ, though we have not seen Him, is a demonstration of faith and joy in Christ. And believing in Christ, though we do not see Him, expresses love to Christ and is a kind of rejoicing in Christ. Faith, joy, and love are intermingled elements, one of the other. So here are two awesome implications that I think are meant to be drawn from this. First, rejoicing in our hope, despite trials, is proven faith. Whenever you go through the trial and you're rejoicing in your hope, that's faith that's glowing hot with joy. That is the kind of faith that God will praise and honor and glorify at the revelation of Christ. The second, because of how these intertwine, I hope it's obvious to you. I think the saints' hearts just naturally understand this. That Christ is at the center of this living hope and inheritance and salvation that are awaiting us. It's a kind of loving of Christ that's central to coming into this inheritance. It's a kind of believing in Christ and rejoicing in Christ that's central to our hope that we long for. But what does it mean to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory? I think it's inexpressible because it's filled with glory. But what is the glory that it's filled with? I think what Peter is saying here is that our joy takes on the nature of that which we rejoice in. And I believe that's made clear by verse 9. Because this belief and rejoicing obtains the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So this love, faith, and rejoicing in Christ obtains right now the salvation, that's the same salvation he's being, that's been spoken of throughout this text, the future salvation, that salvation that's ready for you, the outcome of your faith. This is talking about the end. It's saying you get the future right now. The salvation of your souls is simply short for the salvation of your persons. So rejoicing, believing, and loving Christ are a kind of obtaining right now of the outcome of the end. Such rejoicing puts us into the world to come. I don't believe in any kind of metaphysical sense. I think it happens in simply the way that Peter's developed it in this text. Whenever you go through trials and suffering and your faith is proved and it causes you to long and rejoice more in the hope that you have in Christ, you have in that, by God's work, all of His, all of His doing, you, you now possess a faith that in the end will result in praise and glory and honor. You possess right now something that in the end will result in praise and glory and honor. Do you see how whenever God brings you through that trial, you're possessing something of the world to come. You obtain the end now. 
The second, I think it's this simple. The central joy of the age to come is Christ at the center of it all. And so whenever you are brought through a trial, and you're brought clinging to Christ, loving Christ, trusting Christ more, that is foreign to this world. That's a stamp that you're an exile, you're an alien, you're a sojourner. You're from the age to come. You're not from here and now, which is fading away. You're part of that age that's coming into bloom and fullness. This world is dark and it's fading, but the saints are salt and light because they are foreign and alien to this world. They're part of the new creation. And thus it is, whenever we, we come through any kind of suffering, any kind of sorrow in this world that leads us to cling and love and trust Christ more, we have obtained something more of the end. Michael Horton has written, I am tired of evangelical conferences where more time is given to the hype than to the hope. Where more energy is given to the methods than to the message. And where more effort is devoted to techniques than to truth. Hype over hope. It's a sad day when in so many churches, the joy, the excitement, the happiness is tied to a hype that is fleeting rather to a, than to a hope that is unfading. I'm afraid there is about to be a fire in so many churches set off by all the lights and fog and smoke. And after the fire, there will be no gold coming out the other side because there is no faith, because there is no word of hope declared in which to place our faith. What are the glitz and glare of such hype in comparison, in comparison to the glory of the sun that is to be revealed? And he's revealed in his word. The saints don't need to be worked up into a hysteria mimicking the world's joy delusions. The saints need to hear of the hope of the world to come in Christ such that their faith is strengthened and it can press through a trial with joy. Elsewhere, Horton says that theology is to the trials of life what preparing for the LSAT is to the practice of law. There's no theological basis. There's no biblical grounding. There's no biblical building such that it could make it through the fire in so many instances. Knowing little of what we believe, little of our hope, the saints have little to rejoice in once the, once the flames have consumed it all. Once the flames have consumed all the hype, not knowing little of the hope, the joy is gone. But may that not be so today. May our love, may our faith, may our joy in the Christ in whom all the promises of our living hope, of our inheritance, of our salvation ready to be revealed, in whom all those promises are yes and amen. May our faith and love and joy in that Christ not be extinguished by the flames, 
but proved such that the result in praise and honor and glory astonishingly being bestowed upon us by our Creator and Lord and Savior all towards the end above all that the name of Christ might be magnified above all. Let's pray. Holy Father, bless Your Word. Give us an appetite, not for hype, but for the hope that is in Christ. Sustain our faith. Magnify Your name. Until that day at Christ appearing, when the flames will have consumed all the dross, and the gold that You've worked in us is refined, in the name of Christ exalted above all. In Jesus' name, amen.